Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration class I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. In Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. So if I were the sole arbitrator, Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. I'm Joel Dahlqvist Kulborg. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% caffeine. <laughs> yeah, it's November. <laughs> <laughs> I think I pump way too much caffeine through my body. Where in the world are you, Brian? I am in London in my office. I'm actually recording right in front of my computer because I am the definition of multitasking at the moment. Where are you, Joel? I'm in Copenhagen in my home office, also multitasking. And we should say, for the benefit of all listeners, we are both overworked. But maybe we can return to that further down and complain some more. I got bags, Joel. I got bags Checked bags, bags under my eyes. Bags everywhere. (laughs) But before we complain, let's thank Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IA Reporter, which is our sponsor for Season 3 of the Arbitration Station. IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. And for more than 10 years, IA Reporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. IE Reporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis, as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, visit IAReporter.com. How dark is London? Uh, it's a, Yeah, I think it's sunsets at four o'clock, so sweet. Oh, that's nothing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm 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 feeling light and airy over here, but it is quite foggy at the moment. Oh yeah, same in Copenhagen. I haven't seen the sun. I don't know in probably a week, maybe even more. <laughs> it's gonna be like this now. And as we already hinted, I think we're both working a lot. You have actual. I I also have. You I have actual work. This. Yeah. I am uh, in the final stages of the secretary work and trying to really finalize the dissertation at the same time. And all the creative fun parts are gone in the dissertation work now. I'm just trying to make the text stick together in a way that the text should so that you can follow it logically. And I have some 2,000 footnotes that I have to go over slowly. Oh, my heart just started racing. Don't you wish (sighs) you could just send it off to someone? I guess, but it's all, I mean, at this point, I'm the only one who can do it. I wouldn't trust someone else. Oh, you're going to be a bad partner, Joel. <laughs> you're going to be a bad partner. <laughs> but it's a different kind of task. Now, this is like the, the final few inches of a marathon that I run myself for five years. It, it would be stupid <laughs> to form that out off, now. Your limbs are falling off. Your teeth are falling out. You're like, I got this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the footnotes are just full of. Uh, cross-references that I can't even understand myself, so it wouldn't be fair to someone else because it would it would make no sense, frankly, to give this to someone else. Fairness they, doesn't they exist understand. in big law. <laughs> Come on now. Uh, yeah, well, that's... And you're doing casework. You started 
with your uh, or full speed. Full already. speed ahead. Just got you know sat down, said hello to everyone next to me, and then <laughs> put on my headphones and haven't looked up in three weeks. But it's just focusing on getting the submission out, and it's a different beast here. You know, I'm uh, adapting quite well, but <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> not in Sweden anymore. We are not in Sweden anymore, Toto. Um, <laughs> but it's it's exciting. I mean, there's it's a good subject matter. It's a good case and obviously you always think your case is is valid and legally sound but you never know until someone new reads it yeah exactly i'm looking forward to hearing more about this we've already spent 20 25 min- minutes chatting off air until we realized that we were supposed to <laughs> record a podcast as well <laughs> but you know what distracted me quite a lot and this has to do with the IA reporter and it has to do with not working in sweden anymore is this this um Vattenfall challenge that came oh, down. Yeah. Not that we're going to talk about it substan- substantively, but there's a. Uh, well, we hot... couldn't, could we? I don't think it's been. No, published or... yeah, there isn't um, much to talk about, but that's uh, to look back over my shoulder and see that they have to deal with this now is um, it's not an enviable task, I'll tell you that. Yeah, it's good for you. They're challenging all three arbitrators, which Martin Paparinski's a very uh, funny and incredibly gifted young academic um, said on Twitter, it's a hat trick. They're going for a hat trick. <laughs> and they're, they're joining the company of some other states who have challenged all three arbitrators, which is a, kind of a, a bold move and unusual. It will be interesting to see how this pans out. Yes. Um, so cheers to IA Reporter for breaking some news. Yeah, once again. Mm-hmm. I was reading, and this is this seems like a shameless plug, but it just came to my mind. I was reading, uh, looking for something on ITA Law, and there was submissions on a case, and it said, you know, brought to you by or whatever IA reporter, um, uploaded by ITA Law. So I thought it's pretty good stuff. Yeah, I think most of the the things at ITA Law or ITA Law comes from IA reporter, and it it's good. They uh, probably do some incredible uh, search engine optimization because whatever you mm-hmm. Google. Uh, an award that site comes up first. How does this is actually an interesting topic? What do you think about the publication of submissions? From what angle? In what sense? I don't know. In the sense of transparency <laughs> versus the sense of client confidentiality. Okay, well, I, this uh, you know where you have me on this. <laughs> let it out. <laughs> yeah. Let it out. Let it free. Let it hang. Yeah, exactly. Sunshine is the best disinfectant. But, but on a serious note, I I've spoken to a few people about this because. I think that it is sometimes not as useful as some people tend to think to have owned the award if you don't have access to the party's pleadings. It's it's hard to follow. And yes. for for example, that thing that you did with Vattenfall where you could follow the whole thing mm-hmm. with uh, a few hours delay uh, streamed video, mm-hmm. that that is only relevant if you also have access to the party's pleadings You're because right. you, you can't really follow like a cross-examination for hours if you don't have the documentation that is being referred to. So I think in the interest of full transparency, we should have a, you know, as much as possible available. Then, of course, I realized there are, there are reasons that that's not the case as of yet. Yeah, that's why I was surprised to find it. But I thought it, it was extremely helpful, I have to say, as far like from an advocacy perspective, because you're always getting the tribunals like very neutral distillation of the facts. And especially when you're trying to analyze cases or analogize cases based on a recitation of the facts using an award, you kind of don't get it all. Yeah, that is true. 
And so it kind of, I thought it, w- it was very, very helpful. Um, and not only to do that, but to kind of like how the parties argued certain things, because as you know, working as the secretary to tribunal, you know, the tribunal's just getting down to the the issues that they want to opine upon. And sometimes they throw out other ones. And, you know, I've read cases where I'm like, you know, the facts are so on point and then they throw it on a jurisdiction and you're like, no, I wanted an award on that. (laughs) And if you had parties pleadings, then you could kind of, um, but I guess it's not authoritative. Yeah. No, no, it's not, but it it provides a a background. I've actually, uh, I just proved uh, one of the introductory sections in my dissertation manuscript where I, where I discuss this because it is, of course, a limitation. Uh, I look at a lot of commercial arbitration awards or investment awards at ICC and SEC. And for like general international lawyers, I try to explain how arbitration works and how that affects my, my analysis. And this is one of the major points, that it's so party-driven mm-hmm. that you have to keep in mind that you don't get a full picture just from reading the award. You have to see it in context and be aware, even if you can't really access it, that the parties have uh, pleaded their case based on you know law and facts. And that has sort of set the frame for what the tribunal has said. There's no you don't know with curia. There's no like general uh, tribunal mandate to develop the law or whatever. It's all very case specific and you need to keep that in mind. But I've also read a lot of uh, court set aside decisions. And then if you're lucky, you actually get the party splittings as a right. general rule because everything's public. And the, right. it's, a, it's a whole different experience when you have essentially the whole case file so much easier to, to follow uh, the case and its development. Mm-hmm. Speaking of your Nova Korea. <laughs> a bit forced. <laughs> <laughs> Let's Not talk about our segments. Yeah, which are only two in a deviation from a well-established concept. Curveball. Yep, but it's for a good reason, because we finally managed to get Michael McElrath on the podcast after having tried and almost succeeded to meet up several times on different continents. (laughs) We we gave up and scheduled uh, a phone call instead. And Mike is uh, Global Litigation Counsel at Baker Hughes, which is a GE company, General Electric. uh, I don't even know the word. It's so big. One of the largest companies in the world, General I guess. Electric. And yeah, oh, exactly. Giga- gigantic behemoth. Yeah, okay, that's good. I was like looking for an adjective, but I, having having worked now as secretary, I try <laughs> I to scrub say. adjectives out of my vocabulary. <laughs> I have to take them back. <laughs> no adjectives. No adjectives. Bring no back adverbs. The adjective. <laughs> um, oh, so where were we? Yeah, Mike is in-house counsel, but he uh, so he he contracts a lot of law firms to work for him, but he also acts as counsel himself. Which was very this, impressive to hear. Yeah, not all. Well, I guess. Most don't at all. Uh, in-house lawyers work as as counsel themselves. Yeah, so, uh, it's a rare. I I would guess that and you plead the cases yourself. He'll start off by giving us an introduction, not an introduction at all, actually, like a, a very nice analysis of the prog rules. And just before you tune out, because you think you've heard it in every every conference around the world, I think he does a really good job of bringing, you know, some practical aspects to the prog rules and and bringing like a new take on it. So um, this will not just be a recitation of the articles of the Prague rules and how they apply. This is actually just kind of like an application from different perspectives. So yeah, and a big picture kind exactly. of, it's so great to have Mike on um, also because he did another podcast, which we will talk about pretty soon, but he is one of those people I think that make this business so great 
yes. person who's who's involved in everything and who's curious and has uh, such a broad horizon that it's a pleasure to talk to him. We we will have him back for sure because I enjoyed just talking to him. And we should also mention that a year ago he was the recipient of the Arbitral Women Champion for Change Award, which uh, is something he should be proud of and I think will be a recurring thing. Arbitral Women will hand out this award for people who contribute to changing arbitration for the better. Mm-hmm. He calls himself an arbitration junkie, which you can tell just by listening to him talk <laughs> about it. <laughs> and then we talked to him about, just as you say, he had a podcast um, back in the day. He was our predecessor in the podcasting sphere. Yeah, the IDN podcast, which Jan, our editor and fellow lawyer, I suggested to us. Uh, a long time ago that we listened to and we did and were blown away by the level of sophistication <laughs> yes and production value and he i was very intimidated to have him on the podcast but it's but that's what int- we talk about uh, <clears throat> for for happy fun time after after the prog rules we uh, have a happy fun time talking about running an arbitration podcast and comparing notes from our respective experiences and what has changed in the like 10 years since he stopped doing his and we started with ours. So it's sort of a, a meta podcast over uh, <laughs> fictional beer. Podcasting about podcasting about podcasting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Joel, I hope you get some sleep in the next coming weeks. Um, I probably won't. <laughs> okay. I'm at this stage now where if I close my eyes, I fall asleep. Oh, like, me too. Well, it happens a few times a day almost. It was so funny. We were on a plane at my old firm and we were on a plane going to like a conference for the whole firm. And I was sitting in the front of the plane and I went to go back to use the restroom. And uh, I walked back and everyone who was either on secondment or maternity leave was out like talking, you know, talking with other people and being social. <laughs> yeah. Everyone at the firm was either asleep or their head like deeply buried into a computer. I was like, <laughs> this is so indicative. <laughs> Yeah, it reveals a lot about the nature of the business. But this is also we'll sign off by sign off this introduction by announcing a changing of the guard and uh, between our researchers. So we will say adieu, goodbye to Callum Agnew. He did a great job for us in the first few segments. You can find his profile on our website if you want to add him on LinkedIn, etc. Um, thank you for all your help and even the last minute urgent work as well. Yeah, we are not the best bosses so far (laughs) in the world. And with that, we also say welcome to the next person who gets to have us as a boss for a time, which is Risha Brahija, who starts uh, with the next episode, which is the seventh, I guess, of the third season, because this is episode six. So uh, we have already started uh, calling Risha Rishi uh, without telling Risha that we (laughs) do so. (laughs) Hope that's fine. Hope that's fine. Uh, Welcome to the team. And with that, I think we will move on to Mike McElrath and the Prog Rules. I'm in Copenhagen, Brian is in London, and in Florence we have finally Mike McElrath with us. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's going to be a bit strange to do this uh, as a three-way conversation, but I guess you guys especially do conference calls all the time and you know how to behave. <laughs> we'll figure it out. <laughs> well, yeah, although, although I think you, you learn 
to multitask, that's where, oh, I, you, know, it's you, you say, oh, I'm sorry, I had you on mute. You know, like, what was the question again? <laughs> I had an expert that did that the other day, and I was like, you were not listening. <laughs> he said he was running a church function at the same time. I was like, that's prudent. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay, that's hard to argue with, though. Exactly. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so before we start discussing the, the Prague rules or the, the PR, we have some audio that you recorded uh, quite some time ago to sort of uh, segue us smoothly into this topic and what we are actually talking about, which essentially has to do with the expectations that parties and or arbitrators uh, have from the, the process. Uh, you recorded, I think we have what, three, four different snippets, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, if I can walk you through these, maybe you can just include them. The, the, the first one is, um, and this came from a podcast that I did that I entitled As Long as a Piece of String, which took from the first audio, uh, who's an arbitrator in Australia, John Wade, who I think lays out what I think would be really a reasonable view from any point of view of an arbitrator, which is I can make the process really as long as the parties want it, right? And I think that's that's an entirely defensible and reasonable perspective for, for arbitrators to adopt. If you are marketing a product as an arbitrator, it's essential that you have different products. There's product one, you buy into it, I give you the rules, you'll get the answer in 14 days. But I have two more products, which are called six months and long as a piece of string, you just sign up for A, B or C. Nice, thank you. Um, the, so, but, but then, so I, I, I had this idea that, you know, we talk a lot about sort of harmonization or different views of our of dispute resolution, you know, different cultural aspects, depending on where you are. But I figured, you know, I wonder, are there are there sort of platonic notions? I mean, this is the sort of thing I think about, honestly. <laughs> are there are there sort of, you know, beyond harmonized or cultural issues? Are there sort of these platonic notions of, of how long a dispute should take to resolve? You know, do they depend on culture or do they somehow sit somewhere in the either in our in our heads um, and does it depend on where we come from in terms of our background so you know you hear from the arbitrators and you know I only had that one from 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 John Wade but I but I think that that you know may be a fairly representative view so then I, I went to arbitration litigation lawyers um, from different parts of the world um, in both in-house counsel and external counsel and I asked them um, to imagine an arbitration, I gave them a, you know, a, a hypothetical uh, case to think of, $10 million in dispute. So a, a good sum, um, not a not, you know, billion dollars, but also not you know, 50000 but you know, $10 million, something that uh, really anybody would say, that's an amount we should be fighting over, at least today. I mean, I don't know, this was back in 2008, 2009, back when you know, $10 million could actually you know, get you something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, back in my time, ten million dollars. Yeah, $10 million. <laughs> I used to go to the movies for ten million dollars. Um, <laughs> and you'd have money left over, you know, um, to buy dinner. Um, so, but 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 also to make sure that people understood that I wasn't talking about how long does arbitration actually take or how fast can you really make it take. I wanted to get them to give me a sense of what you know in their minds how long ought this process take. I said, you know. Now contrast that, you know, I'm going to ask you two questions, one about um, a normal arbitration and the other is about an expedited arbitration. Just give me, you know, how long do you think this should take? And so I, I asked um, a group of, um, 
of litigation arbitration lawyers um, in the inside outside counsel. And this, these are the answers, including, uh, I, and I recorded at a meeting of all of the lead litigators of, of General Electric sitting around a room at the end. Um, and you'll, you'll hear the, the, the views here. Italian lawyer and English solicitor, yes. litigation lawyers. Okay. Okay, I'll say nine months. Nine months. Yeah. Nine months a year. Nine months a year. Okay. What if you had an expedited or fast track arbitration? Six months. Yeah, six, six months. Six months. You're a dispute resolution arbitration lawyer in Hamburg, right? That's correct. International arbitrations, if conducted very efficiently, could also be within six months after the terms of reference have been uh, signed, but average is probably two years. Two years, okay. And in your view, an, an expedited arbitration should take how long? Fast track, maximum three months. I'm from Siemens. I'm a senior counsel. My opinion is uh, a normal medium arbitration should not take longer than two years. And an expedited arbitration? Six to nine months. And here in rapid succession are the lead litigation lawyers of the various divisions of my own company, General Electric, Medium complexity, uh, normal arbitration, start to finish, how long? One year. Expedited. Six months. Agreed. No, you have to say. One year, six months. Makes sense. One year, six months. Uh, 18 months, six months. I'd say 18 months, six months. One year, three months. One year, three months. One year, six months. 18 months, three months. 18 months, six months. One year, four months. One year, six months. Nine months, three months. Eighteen months, six months. One year, six months. Without discovery, eighteen months, three months. Oh, for Christ's sake. Uh, <laughs> it matters. All right, let's start over. <laughs> I just answered the question. No. I, I, was, I was afraid he was going to say, as long as a piece of string. But... Sometimes you just need to make a decision. Well, There's two million pages in a case that the, the other side saying, well, it's arbitration. Oh, yeah. uh, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, I'm a little upset about it right now. We don't even have to be here. It's so comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, so if you listen, so, so if, you, know, you can take away from that is that, you know, it, it's in interesting how no matter where these lawyers were, again, I recorded this, I think in the, it was in the Middle East, I recorded it in Europe and, and in the United States. You know, there's a lot of alignment. I think people kind of come out to a concept, you know, one to two years is a, is a fairly, you know, uh, decent model to have in terms of the idea how long an arbitration should last. Now, now here, here's the problem that I face as an in-house lawyer. I speak with the business people who live in according to different rhythms. Um, and um, well, you just listen to what the business people think in, in their heads, how long an arbitration ought to take. And you negotiate contracts that have arbitration clauses in them sometimes, Absolutely, right? yes. Okay. Uh, it takes a long time, and it's not a day or two. Months. Months. It could take a couple of months. Okay. You can get it over with in a couple of months. Okay. Yeah. And expedited arbitration. A fast to me would be a week or two. To say the business, uh, any uh, headaches, I would guess two, two to three months. And expedited? A month. You negotiate contracts that have arbitration clauses in them. Yes. How long do you think an arbitration should last? I think a month. A couple, couple of months. Okay. Long. And if it was an expedited, a fast-track arbitration? Three to four weeks. I would say it should take only 30 days. 30 days. What if you had an expedited arbitration? 15 days. And if these time frames seem fast, 
Here's Professor Mike Wheeler, assistant dean at the Harvard Business School. I'm talking about my construction thing there. I think you want to do it in days. Days. You know, on that. In days. From the filing of a request for arbitration to an outcome. If you're trying to put up a skyscraper um, on that, I don't think that people want to be sitting around with the whole project stopped um, because you don't know where you stand. Now, you can hear that this is actually <laughs> a pretty serious contrast between what the business people are saying and what the, what the litigation lawyers are saying. Um, and I, the, the, the last um, excerpt is actually is literally from a, a business leader that I was working with at the time. I think this was around 2008 or 2009. And she had an arbitration that was about $3 million that was about um, to, to get kicked off. And she was assessing whether or not she should be bringing her claim in arbitration. And I, and I, and I asked her, you know, straight out, you know, well, here, here's, here's the audio excerpt. What would you say if I told you your arbitration over your $3 million, $5 million dispute might take three years uh, to resolve from the start of a request for arbitration to a final award? Three years. I'd say that's absolutely crazy. At that point, I ask, why even, have our, why even fight for arbitration at that point? It makes no sense to me. So what, what you, I think... If you hear these, you, know, you compare, you know, these different stakeholders, you know, who are all stakeholders in the arbitration process. What, what, what at least what my takeaway was is that, you know, we we have very different notions of timing, really depending on the jobs that that we have, and and I'm not sure that these are truly reconcilable. Um, I mean, I I you know, while it just as like a business leader may say, yes, I want to do something in a matter of, you know. 15 days or 30 days, or in the case of, of Professor Wheeler from the Harvard Business School, one day, um, you know, I'm not sure any real responsible litigation lawyer would tell their clients, you know, on a complex case, we should do this all in 15 days, right? So, part, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but part of our job is explaining to, to, um, to, the, to the clients, you know, why we need a little bit more time. But I think that we're always going to have this tension you know, with the business side saying, you know, I, I work on a different rhythm. You know, I, I report my earnings at the end of each quarter. Um, I'm held accountable for my numbers. And I need a, a, a process that is more suitable to the rhythms that I operate in, not a process that fits the lawyers at, because the lawyers are accustomed to operating a, you know, at a certain pace. Um, and, I, and I just think that that, that and I even call it somewhat of a cultural difference, right? The culture of the parties, the culture of the, of the stakeholders who are paying for the process is, I think, always going to be somewhat in contrast with those who are the practitioners, those who are responsible for actually carrying out, making sure that the disputes are effectively resolved. And I think even within the community of arbitration lawyers, as evidenced by the progress, there are, of course, differing views as well as to the the speed and the the nature of the the process, or at least that's how I interpret the the prog rules and the the idea being that it, the process, as it generally looks now, is too Americanized or too influenced by certain, in particular, common law traditions on on uh, driving a dispute forward. And we should also leave room for alternative views. I, I, I listen. I. Let me just say right now, I, I, I think that this, I'm not I'm not somebody who contributed to the drafting of of the Prague rules. Um, 
uh, in fact, I think actually there, there were no in-house counsel who were involved, which I think if they, in the further progress, I, I would strongly recommend Vladimir Cavelli and, and the others who are responsible for the, for the rules to try to involve some in-house lawyers, because I think that we do bring a, 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 an important perspective to this discussion, and we're the ones ultimately who are going to be paying for the process. Um, so you, you want buy-in from this group early, as early on as possible. Um, but, but I think that's right. There are complete, there are very different views that need to be taken into account. But what I find is interesting that if you ask around with international arbitration lawyers, um, people who are really, who I think really are experienced in international arbitration, whether or not they think that they're, they see this difference between the civil law and the common law when international arbitration is practiced as international arbitration. I think most of them say they don't really see that distinction. Right. I think that they think the international arbitration has kind of become its own creature. And then there's the question of, well, do we want to have something that kind of drags us back towards or drags us towards, whether it's backwards or forwards, drags us towards a sort of more regionalized um, set of practices? You seem to be a good person to to ask about that as well, if you're comfortable stating your own opinion, seeing as you're an American trained lawyer in Italy working for a global company. And I would imagine you see a, a lot of different kinds of disputes, both in arbitration, mediation and in, in domestic courts in different jurisdictions. So you, I, I would imagine you have a pretty good bird's eye view, view of whether or not uh, the civil versus common law uh, tradition really is prominent in international arbitration. But, you know, I, I think it's, look, first of all, let me tell you that in terms of the actual practice that we, that I would prefer for our, most of our arbitrations, I'm speaking very generally in any particular case, I might fight like hell to move to a different position because I think a different position might be better for that particular case. But speaking in, you know, generally about arbitration for my business, <clears throat> and again, the business I represent provides heavy machinery, equipment and services to the oil and gas industry. So it, it's you know, that is the, that is the, the, the area that I can speak to. I'd say that for our disputes, again, speaking very generally, um, I prefer this much of the civil law approach to dispute resolution. I think that claimants ought to have a rather robust, full, prepared claim when they bring their case. I think documentary evidence in the possession of the parties ought to be you know, what most of the arbitration is based on. I'm very nervous about um, discovery and the unpredictability that it injects into the process. Um, so I, I have a, a certain affinity already for sort of the civil law approach. I, I wouldn't adopt wholesale a lot of the, the civil law processes, but I think there are some things that, and I think that they've crept into arbitration and international arbitration in many ways that I, that I, that I, that I like. But I, but I don't think, again, I think that international arbitration tends to be its own its own creature and that we use this i think that these days we use civil law and common law as proxies for i would say expansive or restrictive right we really want to know if an arbitrator is going to be somebody will they you know, for example they, will they interpret the iba rules of evidence in a way that will allow a massive fishing expedition or will they interpret the iba rules of evidence rather restrictively right um you know and 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 it's because there's so little public information about how arbitrators actually conduct proceedings, what we do is we, we use their background. We, we stereotype them, right? We say, well, you're from the United States, so therefore you're going to believe in expansive discovery. That's just the benchmark that you've grown up with, so that's the way you're going to manage things. And it's hard to double-check that information with actual past practice because to the extent you even have previous awards available, this part tends not to be in the awards. So you need to base it on insider knowledge of that person's particular 
experience in order to sort of second guess what would otherwise just be, as you said, a proxy or a guess based off of the jurisdictional background. Right, right. That's I would say the IBA rules already provide that sort of that range of options to you, right? You can have expansive or restrictive. It's really what you try to figure out is how are the how are these arbitrators going to conduct the proceedings? And you're, you're right. Unless you have that inside knowledge, it's really it's very difficult to be predictive. I, I, I co-authored an article a few years ago, a couple years ago, called "Puppies or Kittens," <laughs> a provocative title. Um, but with the idea of oh, the, the idea of puppies or kittens is there are certain things that we just want to know about arbitrators. Like like if I were to ask you guys, you know, do you? And, and by the way, this rose out of a, out of a, this the idea germinated at a, a Vienna Viac Arbitration Day conference um, where I was on a panel with um, Philippe Deli and, and David Rivkin. Um, and Catherine Rogers and, and Nicholas Pitkowitz, who, who who ran the panel, um, and I just came out and we. Oh, I think I think David David and Philippe were both late, and so we conspired and we said we're going to ask them. You know, do they like puppies or kittens more? Because it was about arbitrator soft skills. The panel. Oh, okay. <laughs> And and David David oh man David really didn't want to take a position initially, but I think he came down in favor of puppies, if I remember right. <laughs> <laughs> I think Dali, I think Philippe, I think Philippe is a kitten guy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but you, you, you want, right, you, you want, it, it, put it this way, I, maybe there are cases where I want to know, I want an arbitrator who says, well, I like both puppies and kittens. Um, but there are some cases where I really prefer someone who's dedicated to puppies, right? If I, if, if you're, if you have a pet at home, right, um, and let's say it's a puppy, and you want somebody to take care of your puppy, and you call them up and say, "Listen, um, do you like pets?" <laughs> they say, "They say yes, I like pets." Well, which, well, which pets do you like more—puppies or kittens? And they say, "Well, I don't know. Tell me which kind of pet you have." Yeah, I like somebody's a little bit more committed before I before I appoint you to be the person who's going to take care of my very important pet. You know, that's mm -hmm. that was that that was the idea behind. Um, puppies or kittens is that if you are if you know if you are comfortable saying certain things at conferences you ought to be able to express those in writing so people could just access, access this information and if you if you arbitrators have done that have taken the, the puppies or kittens suggested questionnaire there's a questionnaire that we included at the end of our of our article where we said there's there's some things that are procedurally that we think that parties just want to know and instead of making us guess why don't you just tell us where on a scale of one to five you come out um on on these issues and and there are a few i mean i think you know like paul mason in brazil uh lucy greenwood who's the co-author of the article she had on her website uh aaron gleason alvarez um in in new york and there are a few others who've, who've posted their responses. And I think if you read, if you don't know this arbitrator and you read their answers to these questions, I think it makes it easier for you to appoint them because you have a sense of, of now, well, how they might conduct the proceedings in your case. And we should also plug Catherine's Arbitrator Intelligence Initiative, I guess, with, with this as uh, part of the questions asked also to parties after tribunals have, have made decisions absolutely. like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I've told Catherine, I think, you know, the puppies approach is what we would call it. It's a, it's a baby step. It's a very modest, you know, step toward in the direction of arbitrator intelligence. Her, her project yeah. is much vicious, much more comprehensive, you know, far better developed than, 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 than just a simple questionnaire. What do you think but of this new sorry. business model that has, uh, that I've, I've heard of uh, rumor and rumblings, but it's kind of like a, 
a person, you know, an expert in voir dire and jury selection process is now going to be, there's now an expert in arbitrator selection process. So you hire this external consultant to come in who has experience in, in a firm and in an institution. And they're now kind of have this like centralized intelligence um, to select the best arbitrator. Do you think as an in-house lawyer that you would empl- employ that person? Oh, I never, I hadn't heard of that. Um, I, you know, it's kind of depressing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. isn't that... I mean, Catherine is probably boiling now if she's listening to this, because it, it sounds like the exact opposite of or what she wants to address. Yeah, <laughs> to, it, to it keeps it get, more get rid of that. secret. Yeah, because it's proprietary information on the arbitrator intelligence, basically. <laughs> well, I mean, it just sounds like, I mean, that sounds like a... Uh... Like that's just a demonstration that there's a need for arbitrator intelligence. Right. It's like that's like proof of proof that that yes that that thing should should take off. I mean, it's also I think a, a, a failure of us as a profession that you know the people feel the need that they have to go out and hire someone to you know dig dig around and figure out what they can about how an arbitration might be conducted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But pivoting back to the prog rules, it, it yeah. seems like, at least generally speaking, uh, judging from what you said about your general preference, that you might be inclined as an in-house counsel to be sympathetic towards the the driving force, at least, or the, the rationale behind the prog rules. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I think it's a great I think it's a great discussion that they've launched. Uh, you know, but we, by the way, I, I chaired this thing called the Global Pound Conference. Um, I don't know if you guys are followed it or aware of it, but we had this, uh, the, the International Mediation Institute um, it developed a, um, a multi-city, it was it initially it was intended to be like 10, five to 10 cities simultaneously. And then as the, as the ball got rolling and interest was generated, it eventually became 28 cities around the world oh over God. a year and a half. Started in Singapore with, with, with Singapore with um, Chief Justice Sundarish Menon kicking kicking off the the initial conference it concluded with lord justice briggs um in london giving us the keynote at the last one and at all of these conferences we invited stakeholders and asked them the same different stakeholder groups uh, parties council um providers being mediators arbitrators and institutions um, government ministries and academics so we tried to have the, the full range of people and we had them vote on the same 20 questions to try to harvest data and and the we 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 with a grant from the American Arbitration Association we've retained a um, statistical um, institute uh, organization called Resolution Resources which is um, now going through the data that was collected and will publish a publish a final report um, in early 2019 just a little bit of a plug for the for this report which I think is will be one of the few um, might actually be a unique in terms of providing some data. Um, about dispute resolution preferences as they are around the world. But the one thing I, I, I can tell you is that one of the preliminary conclusions that we've been able to, to glean from the data is that by far the biggest concern of all of the stakeholder groups um, around the world is efficiency. I think it was 65% you know, of, the, of the responses all highlight that that, was, that that should be the top priority for dispute resolution. So it being, it, it, it's clearly something, you know, it, it, the preg rules hit a, a, a note or a chord that has, that is resonating everywhere. So I, I think it, it's a great addition to the discussion. 
with now the preg rules themselves i have i have separate issues with such as well but well there are a number I, well, well well such as but but, but just let me say, i think i think that they that it is, it is it's a very good concept um but I think that I think in, just in terms of their execution, I think that they're you know I, I you know I know that I'm, I'm actually going to be at the conference where they're they're um, they're going to be officially launched, um, and I've told them I'm, I'm not coming in to say you know to be a, and good for them for having me. You know, I'm not coming in you know to fully endorse these. I endorse the conversation, the rules themselves. I, I think they need work. Um, the first thing I think they need to do is I think that, you know, there needs to be a bit more transparency and a bit more robust process around the development of, of rules like this. If, I mean, particularly if you want to have a document that will become, you know, a living document that's organic and can change over time, like the IBA rules of evidence, right? Absolutely. It, it, it really, you, you, need the, you, need the, you need the consensus there. Um, and I think yeah, that and I guess they're, they're already sort of fighting the IBA rules in the sense that there's a, there's a first mover advantage here that there are already these rules out there that have sort of universal buy-in, although they can, of course, as you mentioned, be, be interpreted and used differently. Still, we, there is already something that the prog rules would have to compete with uh, in order to, to be picked up. So the process uh, has to be rigid. Well, see, and here's where I think this is this is this is interesting because the question is, are they are they competition or are they complementary? Um, you know, and Duarte Henriquez, who's been on your on your show, has also written a, uh, I think, a Clure post where he argued that they're complementary. Um, I, I, I um, as as the as the current corporate liaison to the IBA Arbitration Officers Committee, um, I surveyed a number of my in-house colleagues at other large companies and asked them the question. Um, do you think that the Prague rules are competition or complementary? And do you think that they are reason for the IBA rules to be updated? And the, the, the answer came back, again, from, from, from people who have my job at a different companies, was that they didn't see them really as competition. Uh, they didn't also see them as a reason to revise the IBA rules specifically. <clears throat> but interestingly enough, uh, the number of the comments that came back said that they did think that the IBA rules may, may need to be revised separately, just simply to address the costs of, um, particularly discovery, um, that, which a number of my colleagues in Europe um, and in the United States share. Think think that that their tribunals are not adequately managing or keeping down the costs of of arbitration. But yes. I but I but I yeah, but I don't think but I don't think I. I, th I, I tend to be of the school that I think that they're not necessarily a, a competitive set. And, and on their face, they're not because they're not, you know, the IBA rules are only evidence. The Prague rules are not just evidence. They're also all kinds of procedure, right? They're, right. It's, it's, it's the whole thing. But it's still in, in any given dispute, I guess the parties would have to opt in. And since we all, uh, by training, try to avoid unnecessary risk or uh, unpredictability, you want to avoid having a situation where parties agree to use them both at the same time. That's going to be tricky. So it's in most scenarios, I guess it's going to be either or, assuming that we have the prog rules and they are out there to buy in. They aren't really compatible, are they? You want to avoid. But, but, but Joel, but, but think of it. But I think you bet this is a really good, really good question. Is because you're you're a podcaster and you're asking good questions, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so so if the parties. Let, let's say that's not in the arbitration clause, and I, you know from what I've said before that I don't believe you should be loading your arbitration clauses up with rules and stuff other than the arbitration rules that you've agreed to. Um, so let's say the dispute's arisen, 
and you're at the point of negotiating a procedural order. If the parties agreed to apply the Prague rules, I guess my question is, do you need the Prague rules? <laughs> if you're, <Right. clears throat> no, I, 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 that's an honest question. I mean, if you're already in that much agreement over how the arbitration ought to be conducted, why aren't you conducting it that way, irrespective of whatever set of rules that you've referred to? My guess is you're probably both from the same region, if not the same country. You probably both have counsel who have affinity with that particular way of doing things. So if, if it's to enshrine certain concepts between parties that already share fundamental procedural values, I, I, I'm not sure what purpose they, they serve in that case. I, I also true, but it, it, it's not always as clear-cut, though, is it? I, I think that the even in the community, speaking now as a civil lawyer, and we both attended, Brian and I, uh, the conference that Brian co-hosted where this was a topic, and, and a Dutch lawyer actually asked the audience after having presented on, on the prog rules a few questions on whether they would prefer this over the IBA rules, uh, either as counsel or as arbitrators. And it was very clear there was division in the room, and that reflects my discussions with other Swedish arbitration lawyers as well, who on the face of it might be uh, sympathetic to this, that there's maybe not a 50-50 split, but it's it's far from universal that Jura Novit Curia, for example, which the prog rules provide for, is a good idea in international arbitration. So even if you have parties from civil law countries, to speak, speak in a broad way, you still, I think, uh, might benefit from having uh, a one-stop shop that we just buy into to this, and then we know, you know, it's it's a how many articles are there? It's pretty pretty short that yeah. we agree that will govern the dispute, rather than having to argue this point by point or assume that we agree on things that we might may find out later that we do not agree on. I I, I, I think it could be useful in in, in that sense. Again, I, I have some issues. We can walk through some of the rules and where I think I, I would have some, some concerns. Um, I, I do think that you will find that among civil law practitioners in international arbitration, there's not uniform, like I, I would say, there's not uniform, or there's not a lot of agreement that the Prague rules really do reflect civil law practice. I think it's, it's a particular part of civil law practice, particularly more, you know, German and going eastward in, in Europe practice that they tend to much more endorse. Um, you, you take, for example, just the notion of, um, you know, the Prague rules, you know, encourage the use of tribunal appointed experts. Well, you know, that, that's, we have tribunal or court appointed experts here in Italy. They have them in Germany, they have them in, in, in France and Switzerland, but you don't have them in Spain. Spain has uh, party appointed experts. Um, it's, a, it's a very different um, form, but it's a civil law jurisdiction, right? So you can't, I think, go forward and say, this is the way all civil law jurisdictions do things. We're going to ask something before Brian. Yeah. <clears throat> well, no, I was just going to I was going to comment on the procedure order comments because I think PO1 the the <clears throat> collegiality of PO1 is very different than the collegiality of PO25. Um, and, pe <laughs> and people get very <clears throat> people are always very excited to kind of like armor up their arbitration. <clears throat> Excuse me, especially when you're talking to a client and they're saying, "Okay, well, what are the rules to this?" very flexible thing I just agreed to. And they're like, well, there are no rules. We just all have to agree to it. And I think they get a bit paranoid. And then as counsel, you try to assure them. And by assuring them, you kind of say, well, there's this and this. And you try to give them tools that they can then implement. Um, that was my first point. And then the second point is to go to the, the puppy kitten argument is that then you have arbitrators that will just say, we're influenced 
by both rules. Yeah, <laughs> they don't have to agree to anything. <laughs> May take guidance from. Exactly. I'm guided by all rules ever. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, and the truth is, and, and guys, and that's where you get back to the reality, right? I mean, how often do the IBA rules actually get adopted as rules? Right. And I, my experience, never. I mean, right. they're always there as a reference. And so I could... I can actually see arbitrators saying, sure, we'll refer to the APRAG rules and the IBA rules, and then we're just going to do things <laughs> as, you we know, see fit, yeah. as we see them. And if one party starts shouting about due process being violated, then we're going to be more expansive and let them get away with murder, mm -hmm. which is perhaps all <laughs> the cases. Yeah. Um, do you have some other concerns with the, with the PRAG rules not that, we, that we have you on it? Well, I think there's one. I think there's one in particular, and there's a, there are a few we can go through. But the one I think that I would make me um, hesitate or actually refuse to recommend to my colleagues that we adopt this in any arbitration is um, Article 5.6, which says that if a written if a written witness statement is submitted by a party or at the invitation of the arbitral tribunal, the arbitral tribunal, after hearing the parties, may decide not to call for the hearing at the, for the hearing of the fact witness whose witness statement has been submitted. And it goes on to say, any decision not to call a witness whose tenor to witness statement does not limit the arbitral tribunal's authority to give as much evidential value to the written statement as it finds appropriate. I, I, I just find this, I don't know under what system you're allowed to unilaterally submit evidence and not be able to contest it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I, 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 that, that I think is one that just, and there are a number of these rules that I think are, are I think conceptually they, 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 go in an interesting and usually useful direction. This is one that I, I would be very nervous about having any tribunal go forward. I mean, how would you guys feel if you're in an arbitration and you had this particular rule? The arbitrator said in their procedural order, we can just take it with the statements and you don't get to cross-examine. Right. You vest, vest the tribunal with a lot of authority. It sort of moves the power from, from the party's adversarial process to the tribunal's uh, divine authority to do what they want. <laughs> But I guess my my question is what what civil law arbitrator again in the civil law has a very strong tradition of being able right to have a sense of equality between the parties and being able to contest also the evidence that in Italian is called the contraditorio is the sense that you're able to to challenge you know to confront the evidence that's being presented I, I'm not sure that that's something that most civil law lawyers would would be um, very very would would feel very good about. Comfortable with? I don't. What, I mean, what's your sense? I mean, Joel, you're you're from a civil law background. Would you feel comfortable vesting a tribunal with the authority to just kind of take pick at random what they want and say we're just going to adopt that and there's no need to to have this tested at a hearing? Well, I think here the sort of the the bigger problem that I have comes in, and that is that the, our arbitration, as you've already said, is different from our domestic litigation. I think as in a in a domestic litigation context, although this would probably not be the case generally in Swedish civil procedure. It's not alien as such, because as I think we talked about previously on the uh, on the podcast, because Brian's been a bit provoked by this, uh, under Swedish law, we, we really allow the court to evaluate evidence uh, however they wish, basically. So as a general statement, as a Swedish lawyer, I wouldn't be that uncomfortable with it. But that's a different thing from international arbitration, where I think this really departs from notions of party autonomy and the way I expect yeah. an international arbitration to be run. So I, I would be uncomfortable in, in an international arbitration context, even though I might be a bit more uh, flexible in, in a domestic context, I think, where it's established 
generally that we we trust the courts to weigh evidence the way they they want right oh, well said yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean i definitely don't like it at all but that's just no, no surprise there <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> i know <laughs> No, but there's, there's another thing here too, which again I think this is a it's a useful concept, and it adopts the sort of the, you know you know there's the the Austrian the German slash Austrian slash uh, um, German Swiss approach of tribunals um, giving proposals to the parties to settle or facilitating settlement. It, it, it borrows from the judicial tradition in those jurisdictions where judges are more active in trying to encourage the parties to settle. Um, and it allows them to give their preliminary views and also to try to facilitate um, settlement. So the, the, the Prague rules have this, um, I think, Article 2.5 um, that gives them the ability to express early in the stages their views on the burden of proof. But then it goes beyond that and gives them you know, the authority to also tell the parties what they think about particular arguments, certain evidence early in the case, and and as a party, I I'm really sympathetic to that because I mean again this is just the business people want to know right they want to how's our case you know what's it where's it likely to go you know can you read the tea leaves and tell me how things are likely to turn out mm -hmm. um, but what I can tell you from experience and again from cases conducted with arbitrators from those backgrounds from the Austrian Swiss German and uh, German area is that it needs to be done. If it is done, you know, according to particular protocols or practices where you seek the consent of the parties up front, um, you don't do this if the parties tell you that they don't want you to give your opinion or have you, you know, potentially facilitate the settlement. Um, and that it, there's a lot of danger to, I think, you know, providing preliminary views on the case. Um, you're gonna, you're just gonna wind up pissing off one of the parties early on uh, before all, you know the case has been really developed. And I've seen this happen. Uh, with you know, we had a case years ago with a, a former German judge who was the chair, and he did this. He, he did exactly what German judges do. He, he said, "Well, I just think you know that the claimants have a really good, solid argument here on this and that, and blah blah blah." And you know the entire arbitration was then spent. Really, it probably was. You know, caused the parties to triple their expenditures because they were all about, you know, convincing the judge he was right or wrong with respect to those preliminary views that he had expressed. So, I, I mean, I think that as a concept, it may go in the right direction, but in practice, I've seen this really take things, you know, kind of go off the rails with respect to particular types of cases. It might also even open the door for a, a subsequent challenge uh, or a challenge against the arbitrator even for alleged uh, lack of impartiality, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Which raises an interesting issue because the rules say, you know, if you've noted, it goes on to say this shall not be, I forget what the language is, it says that the, I don't have, yeah. fine, the, it shall not be considered a, you know, a compromise or something of the arbitrator's impartiality. But, but then that, that, I think, raises the question, is that something that the parties, can you waive at that stage your right to challenge the arbitrator's impartiality? I, I don't think you can. No. So I think there's even this, again, this is, I think, is this is the, the, the rules I think just think need to be a bit more considered. A bit more, you know, a bit more debate needs to take place about how to how to express these concepts. You know, there needs to be a little bit more meat. You, you know, who does a good job on things like this is CPR. When they do their rules revisions, they have these really broad committees that they get involved. You know, and they and they actually have these notes to particular rules. So, for example, on the recent update of the CPR's international arbitration, I think non-administered international arbitration rules, there is there's a provision for early determinations, but they actually have a very robust practice guideline 
that goes along with that. So there's there's a lot more flesh, right? There's a lot there's a lot more meat to go on to the bones of what of what a rule like this provides um, to keep tribunals from maybe going off in directions that they shouldn't. Let me ask you how you feel about Euronovit Curia as a as a party or the uh, the fact that it, it it's included in the rules that the tribunal itself may apply legal provisions that have not been pleaded by the parties. Essentially, they may know the law, apply the law without the parties having to uh, demonstrate every aspect of the legal provisions that they rely upon. Is that something you, generally speaking, would be comfortable with, trusting the tribunal to do that? No, not at all. <laughs> I can, uh, same, same, so, same, same. You know, I and I would just say that you're like, like, don't do this at home. <laughs> it's, it's an area where, unless, and I mean, I think even when it is done by you know by people who are really, really you know experienced, I think it just takes you in, into dangerous territory. And it, again, this also goes to being parties, and we want predictability, right? I mean, I you know, I, I brief you know, our our company leaders on how the arbitration is being developed. And I, this is true whether you're in a civil law or in a uh, common law jurisdiction, right? You need to be able to say, this is the way we think things are going based on our evaluation of the law and the facts. And if the tribunal, and I've seen tribunals come up with some crazy theories when they try to reach compromise, it, I think it potentially renders the process very unpredictable. So I'm not a big, I'm not a big believer in your Anoic Courier. And neither is Brian. <laughs> but you, you are. Well, but I couldn't imagine. I mean, yeah, uh, I don't even want to get on this topic. We we, we can have a whole segment on this, Joel. Actually, that's we'll, we'll that's actually it. a good segment. That is a good segment. Speech. You should do that. Yeah, yeah. It'll be me. Ranting. You know, you know who somebody. You know who somebody who I think is very. I think I think I think Andrea Carlovaris might be somebody to think to. You might want to talk to about that. I think he may have written about this or thought a lot about your Novik career. Oh, that's right. He's a he's a funny guy as well. They could make for for an interesting segment. He was, my, he was my he was my first case manager when I when I came to uh, GE here in Florence in 1999, um, and I used to be up at you know, I would work late at night and I'd call the ICC all you know, ticked off about our cases being managed and Andrea was always working late so like eight nine o'clock at night I'd be yelling at Andrea he'd be yelling back at me it's like it's not our fault it's the arbitrators you appointed the arbitrators <laughs> <laughs> wait you as the client would call the ICC. Yeah, I'm the client. I'm also the counsel. I mean, I do both. Right. It's just, uh, yeah, you're you're so much more sophisticated than most clients. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, that's what you pay the you, you, one of the things you pay the institutions right for is that you you guys know this because you both worked at the SEC. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're the, you're the complaints department, right? I mean, that's <laughs> part of what the, uh, comes with with the uh, with the fees that you pay. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. I was the complaints department in Swedish when I didn't know Swedish. That's how. Uh... <laughs> That's how good that was. Yeah, so but I don't know. I I think there's again. I think that we could we could kind of go through these and nitpick some of the aspects of the rules. I think, but I think a lot of them express some good ideas. I think the idea, you know, the concept of tribunals facilitating settlement. That's great. I mean, that's also one of the things that we saw with the Global Pound Conference is that there's a real appetite for um, more, you know, different, you know, mixing things up. You know, not necessarily. Um, having people just have to wait for an award but you know trying to you know med arb med arb med arb you know mm -hmm. doing other things. So I, I think that that's something that again with with some more structure around it but i, that, I think the prog rules don't provide enough structure for that I, i'm a little uncomfortable just giving you know, 
know, turning this over to a tribunal um, to, to, to handle this. There, there's a wonderful, uh, Gabrielle Kaufman-Kohler and, and I think Carl Mackey led a, a commission with CEDAR several years ago um, that provided rules um, for the facilitation of settlement and international arbitration. You know, and something like that, I think, could fit, you know, could fit very well with, um, with what the Prague rules have tried to achieve. Here. It's part of a conversation in any event i think it's a, it's a good conversation that we need to be having and i mean we are actually having that conversation right now thanks to the progrule so they're doing a good job in that department they, they, they are they are I, I, by the way do you guys know about the competition that the, 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 the chartered institute just held in singapore no so so this is great by the way i'm 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 sharing something that i'm told i'm allowed to share um because the winners have not yet been announced <laughs> but um uh, in, in preparation for this podcast, um, uh, the, the, um, the organ, some of the organizers of this conference, uh, of this competition, um, uh, shared with me some of the finalist um, procedural orders that were submitted um, to, to read. And it was fascinating. So there was the, the Charter Institute um, had this procedural order competition, drafting competition in, uh, in Singapore. And uh, they invited parties to draft, from a tribunal's perspective, the procedural order that they should uh, have for an arbitration in which one of the parties is insisting on applying the IBA rules and the other is insisting on the Prague rules. Oh, um, interesting. And uh, Yeah, and the parties come from very different backgrounds. One of the parties says, you know, we're, we're from a civil law jurisdiction. The council are ethically forbidden from being able to speak with witnesses. We think both sides should be have their hands tied so there will be parity of, you know, um, of the procedure that they're, that they're able to, or the evidence they're able to have access to, um, and a number of other problems, also with respect to cost, et cetera, so that you have very different culture and very different um, legal cultures and, and, and business cultures that they're, that they're dealing with. And um, I read three of these, uh, these papers, and, and every one of them, I, hope they I told them, I hope they publish them because they're wonderful, they're wonderfully written. Um, but it was, I think this would be a really interesting, you know, way that the Prague rules could potentially be used as, you know, a party could maybe propose them and, you know, and the other party could object and, and say, I'd rather have something else and see how the tribunals might, might sort this out. And what I, what I, what I saw from the, again, the, the, the uh, submissions that I was given access to, uh, one of them, I thought did a brilliant job of um, saying I'm going to reject the Prague rules, but I understand the concerns being raised. I think that the IBA rules can be interpreted in a way um, that will accommodate these concerns. And I thought very deftly handled oh. that. Really, really, really well done. Um, and then the others, I, one of the, the others, I think, did they very creatively did a picking and choosing? We will take this from the Prague rules, and we will take this from the IBA rules, and this will be our procedural order. Um, I, I'd be terrible as a judge because I would just say give them all first prize. I thought they were all the ones that I saw were were, were very well done. Um, but, I, so but, but I thought that yeah, that's really which which goes to I think you know a, a potential use or actually what not a use but a potential you know where does the Prague rules get us? And I think that where where I come out is I would really like to see, you know, the IBA rules um, as more of a menu, you know, where you would say I would like to have the because I've I've had IBA I've had arbitrations under the IBA rules where it's been very civil law oriented or very common law oriented just depends on the arbitrators, 
and, and, and I'd like to just have a sense of, well, you know, red, green, or blue. Or those colors are already taken by a different IBA guideline. Uh, let's say <laughs> <laughs> salty or sweet or something. You know, you find some other, better, you know, that, yeah, I'm, I'd like to have an IBA or arbitration under this flavor, um, you know, a, a more of a, you know, restrictive flavor or more expansive so that the arbitrations can be more proportionate, they can be adapted to the disputes and the needs of the parties, and it can be more predictable as you get into it, rather than it's the IBA rules and it can be all over the map depending on who you appoint. That, that, I, that I think I, I would like to see sort of a, a, a prog flavor, let's say, of, of the IBA rules. Right, that you yeah. could dip, yeah. Finding a, a middle road or a few middle roads, maybe even. I, I think we'll add... Um a link to this competition with or without procedural orders, depending on what they end up publishing on the webpage. And we'll also add a link to your trailblazing podcast, which <laughs> it's I think, still up. <laughs> it, it's still up. It, yes, is. it is. I know, I know for a fact it's still up and we'll, I think move on to a happy fun time talking about the experience and running an arbitration related podcast in 2007. Great. Thank you very much guys. Thank you, Michael. Well, it was a lot of fun. I hope to see you soon in person. This yes, has been great. This likewise. Is... Yeah. This, we could do this every time. We were thinking of adding a third co-host, but <laughs> yeah, our only... Exactly. <laughs> you want to get back in the game, come out of retirement? I got to see what equipment you guys use first. You know, I'm <laughs> exactly. <a gear. laughs> kick, kick the tires. That's right. <laughs> So you, you've listened to a few episodes and you know about the happy fun time setup uh, and the way. It's... I've listened to every episode except the one with Gabrielle Kaufman Kohler, which for some reason won't download for me. Oh. Really? Oh, that's ambitious. I, I wish we could say the same. I've listened to maybe six or seven of yours, uh, or I did when they were up, and then a few more now uh, since we started as well. But the, you have so many. It's like almost 100 episodes. 102. 100, 102. 102. Yeah, 102. Even more. Oh, you broke the magic number. <laughs> was that a milestone for you? Nah, not really. Okay. I, I think it was, uh, yeah, no, it just worked out that way. And then, I, and then life got, you know, my, my personal life got very busy. And I was also, I think, why did I stop? I, there was never a conscious decision to stop doing it. It was just, the, as I said, life kind of took over. And I was becoming a little bit too much obsessed with the editing process. Process. So, I mean, as you guys know, for every like hour that you put into actual recording, there's all the post-production, the pre-production and stuff. And and I found that the post-production, um, I was just getting to be too, too maniacal as an editor. And it, so I think between the two, I just didn't, you know, I, I just stopped devoting the time to doing it. <laughs> when you, I, I can see how that how that mania would break you down. So, sorry, Brian, but I just have to say, listening to the to the podcast that you made, and it, I mean, you started over ten years ago when podcasting was a completely different thing. You're still way ahead of your time uh, because the production value is so much higher than than many contemporary podcasts, ours included, with music. And you're really telling a story. You know, we we just sit down and push record, and then we figure it out afterwards. But you really tell a story and cut in, you know, immediately into the conversations, and you have segues, and it's it's like a, an actual radio program with it, uh, producers it, involved. Well, it didn't start. Yeah, but you know, Joel, it didn't start out that way. I mean, it started. It was interesting. You know how I got started on doing it it was because I, my mom bought me an ipod at one point it's funny because my mom was a judge i don't think i ever listened to, i'd say that you know when you record these things right you never know 
you're you're talking to yourself really and i was literally talking to myself for a part of a lot of these and you never know because of the way these things get distributed you know if anybody really listens to it it's you only find out through feedback people might give you sometimes days or weeks or even months and and i've seen even 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 a decade later that you hear people who've listened to them um but but I, I started the podcast really because, you know, listening to podcasts myself and then having been involved, you know, a little bit in my in my former career, my, my career when I was working in the United States, um, in, in science education and sort of science explanation, I realized that there's a lot of value that you can have to trying to you know, make things accessible to people, that there are parts of, of the practice, um, and I think particularly international arbitration, that... Um, it's just, you know, it, unless you're actually doing it, at least particularly back then, right? I mean, there was only so much that you could learn from books and it was mainly really kind of in talking to people. So I kind of started off with, you know, this idea that, hey, I could probably, you know, figure out how to do this technology and, and maybe make some recordings of people who can tell me how this stuff really works in practice as opposed to how it's explained in the books. You know, that was that was kind of what I started. And then it kind of evolved over time into being something I think was a little bit more developed, a little bit more focused, a little bit more thematic. Um, but initially it was just some interviews. The first one I did with was with Emmanuel Gaillard, literally sitting in the ICC when after Emmanuel and I had, had given presentations to the ICC staff, um, he spoke about the the referee process and I spoke about a need for early disposition of issues in arbitration and then I asked him you know would you mind just you know I have this recorder <laughs> would you mind talking to me for a little bit he's like sure you know and that was kind of how things got started and that kind of got the ball rolling what were you recording with at that time on um, Eddie roll nine um, and then I bought some uh, drum mic some condensed Sensor mics that they're used for for drums because they're very tightly focused, um, and I hook those into a preamp, and I, then I would run those into my Eddy roll. But it usually it was with my Eddy roll nine, which was just it was a you know a wave file recorder um, that did a pretty good job. That's also I think a testament to the difference in time and and how podcast as a podcasting as a craft almost blew up because we could easily just Google you know podcast microphone and then we had <laughs> twenty to choose from and buy them off the rack, whereas you had to create your own uh, yeah, drum, I, I, drum mic setup. It's true. It, it, yeah, I did, well, yeah, well, it worked out well. I, I, I bought at one point a USB microphone because I understood, saw other people doing this out of their computers. And I could just <laughs> I could never really get it to work well where I got decent audio from both ends. So I just found it was easier to carry around a kind of a remote, a portable recording studio with me. And I would set it up on you know, little, you know, um, gadgets that I could mount my microphone on a table and and I did most of them in person I didn't do most of I didn't I did very few um, via remote connections so it was usually something when I was traveling I'd send someone an email I would be in some city somewhere and say look I, you know I know that you're you know a prominent arbitrator in Budapest um, and you've been very active would you mind you know we don't know each other but would you mind sitting down with me for a while and uh, you know recording and then it become a question of trying to find a space that was actually acoustically permissible to yeah that's right. i think the main challenge yeah. <laughs> we had i mean we've all everyone has been completely receptive to all of our invitations not because we're amazing but just because i think people think it's new and innovative and and people are willing to talk about something that they've been working on did you find the same thing that people were oh, always oh, willing to sit down 
it's incredible. It opens the door to you to, to I mean, you know, you can go into any arbitration, whatever who you are, if you have a podcast. And mm-hmm. I hope other people should start one. I mean, it's, you know, contact anyone and ask if they would like to sit down and be interviewed. And, and everybody, you know, in our profession in particular, I think people have things to say. Um, and yeah, I, nobody ever turned. I, I, I did get turned down once by Justice Alito um, of, the, of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, he just didn't want to go on record uh, with some of his positions on arbitration, even though he'd written about it for the Supreme Court. He didn't want to be recorded. And I can understand that being a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but it led to, but it led to very, I had a very nice conversation with him. You know, very nice. We, I, we were both teaching at a, at a, at a this sort of summer seminar. That's was why I was able to get in touch with him. Um, and, uh, but that was the only, I think that was the only time I was ever really turned down for a, on a podcast. <laughs> That's a, a good name to turn you down, though. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we should go for you as Supreme Court justice if you can find something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> did you have any kind of uh, back office? I know you did it with or for the International Institute for, for Conflict Prevention, and it's sort of published uh, at least partly in their name CPR, as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Russ Bleemer. I don't know if you guys know Russ, who's the editor of... Um, uh, Alternatives, which is CPR's very good publication. It's called Alternatives to the High Cost of Litigation. Um, and it's a great magazine that's available both online and, and through CPR. Um, and when, after I had recorded several podcasts, I sent them to um, a guy who was then at the time very active with CPR. He was actually was one of their vice presidents, Peter Phillips. And I said, listen, do you think you guys, I, I have no, I have these recordings. I have no place to, to publish them. I was thinking of doing a podcast. Um, what, would you guys be interested in putting them up? And he, and he said, absolutely. And he put me in touch with Russ. And Russ, and Russ kind of became my, he was my, my collaborator. I'd send them to him. He'd give me some feedback, um, you know, after I do the recording. Um, and and it, it, was, it, was, it was, it's great to have someone who, you know, you know who, who can give you that sort of response to, um, you know, tell you tell you what works, what doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Also, otherwise, you and also catch errors that you make because you, know, you you know, at some point you just tune out, right? You've listened to the thing, you, you've already heard yourself record it, and then you, in the editing process, you just don't catch that point where you know, oh, uh, there was a telephone that rang or something happened, and Russ would pick those things up. Right. Do you tend to to uh, take substance out as well, or have uh, somebody you interviewed say, oh, I said something I shouldn't have? We could you please take this out or did you more or less uh, go with the substance and just take out things that were disturbing the the flow well you know i what i would do is i tried i edited for brevity so if i had say 45 minutes of audio i try to get that down to 15 20 minutes um that was my goal um and oh, so that's I, ambitious yeah yeah and that's why i got a little bit to the toward the towards the end it was a little bit too too oppressive but i would give people running rules and say you know it's Look, this isn't gotcha journalism. I'm not here to try to catch you out. Um, I think I violated once, and I'm kind of. There was one episode that I that I'm not really. Wait for the ambulance. It's an authentic Italian. Exactly. Uh, They're kind of really. (laughs) Here, center of Florence. Um, The no, there was one that I that I. yeah, that I, it, I'll, I'll even tell you, it was uh, Lucas Mistellis after the first couple of the um, Queen Mary um, uh, the, um, surveys that they did. I, I had taken issue, I, I think, and it was actually one of these things, I'll even tell you guys now. I mean, Thomas Walde, um, had, I had talked to him and I said, I don't really think that this really reflects the views of a lot of in-house counsel, at least those that I know. 
and Thomas put me in touch with Susan Frank at the time, who was um, really building her reputation heads up as to how empirical research should be conducted. And so I kind of, you know, ambushed, I think, Lucas a bit with, with that podcast. Um, and, and he was very gracious about it. He was always, I mean, you know, he, he took the high road in the process. But I, that was one where I think I kind of was, I kind of overdid um, my, my approach. But generally what I would do is I would tell people, you know, this is not sort of gotcha journalism. It's just a chance to share your views. I'd like to ask you questions. If there's anything that you think that you don't want to um, share, let me know and I'll delete it out later. Nobody ever did. Um, right. I, I did have one podcast, though, I'll tell you, and these guys, you might have said, I had one podcast where I, I just decided not to publish it because I felt it was so embarrassing for the person and the institution that it would just, um, you know, I didn't, that wasn't my, 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 my goal at the time. So I, I kept it and never published it. Artistic discretion. <laughs> It was a, you, know, you want to hear my note, but that was about that, that was where it instead. There was it was the secretary general who's no longer the secretary general of an institution, who said things that just to me suggested such wild mismanagement um, of the, the organization that it was. Um, you know, I was, I was conflicted about putting it out there or not, but I just decided, you know, that really was not what I was about, so I didn't I didn't publish it. Did they but look yeah, out no. for it? Did they ask you for it after? We're like, where's my no. interview? No. Because you know, it's like, it's like what you said, podcasts. Like, you know, people, it kind of goes off into the, <laughs> I did that. I, I never saw it. So I forgot about it, I guess. Yeah. That ties How about you the, guys? The, you guys have you just had those moments where you like, you go like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have said that or maybe. All the time. And we delete it. <laughs> we delete it out. <laughs> and we've, and same with you. We've had an interview where, or a couple of interviews where we just said, okay, this is, this isn't going to make it. Um, whether it be that it was just all over the place or poorly structured or, um, you know, you can't, you can't just like throw it out there just cause you're on a crunch to, to produce some content. But, um, definitely Joel and I go through, we record it and then we <clears throat> do like a preliminary edit and we send it to each other and then said, Oh, I really don't like that answer. I really don't like my, how I stuttered through that question. So then we'll edit, edit that out. So we do, kind of fine tune it a bit, but I def I'm sure it wasn't as obsessive as, as your editing process was. Well, <laughs> yeah, but you know, but you, you guys, I mean, the, the thing is you guys do a really good job, I think of walking the, the line and, and Brian, you in particular, because you bring your experience with cases, both as when you were with um, the SCC and, and, in, and in private practice, um, you, know, you can't, you know, I realized this also from teaching people in my company when we teach them you know, about, you know, terms and conditions of contracts or, or certain aspects of negotiation, it, the practical examples are what really allows you to convey things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and But you have to walk a fine line between um, things that can identify or you don't want to embarrass parties, right? I mean, people will do stupid things in arbitration and you want to be able to talk about it, but you don't want to talk about it in a way that makes people look bad because that's right. not the reason you're, you know, it's, it's tough. It's, it's a tough line. Absolutely. It really is. I, unlike Brian, have the luxury of not having as much practical experience and can speak somewhat more freely. And I think for me, maybe more so than for you, Brian, it's really grown into sort of a mission statement as well. As long as you stay on the right side of that line, of course, to be able to speak in a way that gives away that you aren't an expert and you haven't prepared 100% and you're, you aren't you know, as good as we want ourselves to be typically basically to create sort of a safe space in which you can learn and 
broaden your horizon generally about international arbitration uh, into aspects that you don't know that much about. And I think it's important to to show listeners, in particular since many of our listeners appear to be relatively junior, that it is okay to to not know everything and it is also okay to ask stupid questions and make mistakes every now and then. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's absolutely I agree that I, I agree completely with that. And it's a problem. I mean it, it's it's a challenge getting people to express their opinions. But yet if you don't express your views, how is anybody ever going to learn how this practice, how this you know because it's because so much of it takes place behind closed doors. Exactly. Right? How do you learn? How do you learn unless you're either a part of some elite law firm where you get exposure to this but if you're not how can you learn about it i think you know you guys are an important part of your you're democratizing um, international arbitration along that line i have a question because joel and i have had some instances where we not not felt a responsibility but certain social issues came up or certain you know issues that we think okay well we have a platform we should be contributing to the discussion on for example the me too movement uh, we felt that even though we're two white males, that we, we should contribute to the discussion and kind of, you know, use our platform to good use. Did you feel any sort of kind of social responsibility when you were going through your episodes? <laughs> I don't, you know, yeah, social responsibility. Or did you take I mean, your platform to, you know, further move the needle forward of anything in particular, or was it just interviews? I think I think transparency was has always been something that I've been very strongly in favor of of trying to as much as possible you know shine light. I think, I think that you know when you when you do things in darkness you know the the cockroaches kind of come out and they and bad things can happen and if you can shine light on things the cockroaches then scurry for the go to the corners. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that would just be the main is trying to as much possible shed light and say, look, you know, demystify this. And this is not something that is inaccessible. It's not something, you know, international arbitration that you you need um, to be, you know, a, you know, quadrilingual speaker from France in order to practice. You know, if you're <laughs> sitting in a shop, no, but it, it's important. This actually, I think this ties into also your last episode where you talked about local council. You know, I think that you know, you, you do want, I mean, I, I always regret saying this because then I find myself in arbitration and the other side is driving me crazy um, with the thing, <laughs> the request. But, well, but, I, but I think arbitration should be accessible, right? I mean, because, you know, we, we tend to, when we think about, you know, and, and Brian, you'll, in your world in particular, where you are, you'll see the, you know, the, the hundred million, the billion dollar disputes, but a lot of businesses live or die on cases that are 500,000, a million, you know, euros or dollars. You know, they can't afford, you know, sophisticated international arbitration council, right? They should be mm-hmm. able to access the process by ha- having the, the, you know, the, the local litigation lawyer who has always, um, you know, knows their business and has always worked with them, right? I mean, why should that, why should we be exclusive of those people? There, it, it ought to be a big enough tent. So, right. yeah, so I think, I think you do have, I mean, a bit of a, a, a responsibility with respect to, you know, providing an, a, an I don't know. I forgot what your question was. I no, you answered. Like... No, no, no. You answered it because it's just this. And I think it's good because and that's something we were trying to do this season, which we haven't really lived up to yet, um, was kind of to expand the scope of not just being at international arbitration lawyers talking to other international arbitration lawyers about international arbitration, but to kind of say there's other players in this game that need to contribute to the discussion. And I think that's maybe what what your, your answer is, which I think is a, a valid and also relevant point even today 
Yeah, but then, then, of course, as you know, and I, I think I, I, I intuit this also from discussions that you've had on your your podcast, whatever <laughs> any particular arbitration, it really does kind of drive you crazy. I mean, you have to get through this sometimes, but the things that people may ask or expect um, because they they believe that's what the way our international arbitration ought to be conducted, um, you know. Was it? I think was I think I think Jan Paulson. I think one in his book he says the international arbitration means many different things to different people, mm-hmm. something like that. It's you. It it can be very irritating when you know you find yourself in those situations. But again, again I think the procedure has it has to be one that's accommodating to to, to those folks. Right. I think many of our listeners uh, were well probably alive, but they weren't very old. When your podcast was, <laughs> was Joel bad. thinks we Joel ago. thinks we run a kindergarten. Honestly, <laughs> no, but I, I I'm serious. I mean, partly you're right, but I'm also a bit serious because I think uh, it seems that, as I said, we have a lot of uh, younger listeners, people our age uh, and below even, who grew up with a smartphone essentially, which was not the case, I guess, in 2008, 2009, or 2010. Did you get a, uh, an overview of of who you were communicating with, who who your audience was essentially? You know, it's really interesting. I, I, my audience, I can tell. What, here, so here's really an interesting thing. I, but at the time, it was people I'd say who were probably, for the most part, at least the feedback were people who were my age or older, because those are the people who knew me and would write to me. <laughs> but over the years, and it, it, over the years, I've been amazed at how many people who were in university. Um, or who's since come out of university, um, listened to the podcast and have given me the feedback that that that's, it was one of the things that enabled them or, or allowed them to be interested in to uh, to develop um, more in arbitration. I was at the um, I was at the IBA conference in Rome in October, and a, a woman I'd never met before, you know, in person came up, gave me her business card. Before I looked at it, she said that she really appreciated my podcast, um, and um, and. And it was I said I thanked her, you know, for for the feedback. And she said, and she talked about how she'd listened to a lot of it back, you know, years ago, and that had really helped her. And I looked at she's the secretary general of the KCAB. I mean, it's wow. it's, um, you know, and, and, and you have these sort. Of, and I was like, you know, it's just great to feel that you've had those sort of contributions to people. And that's why I think that you guys and I and I and I really think you have and will have a much bigger audience because of the way you're going about doing this. Um, you know, you, you always have to be, I don't want to intimidate you, but you know, you, have, you are creating a legacy for yourselves because there are people today who will be around in 10, 20 years and who will have heard your voices and taken their cues from you. Um, and you know, that's, that's, that's just terrific. Do you have a, yeah. sorry, go ahead, Joel. No, you go ahead, Brian. <clears throat> no, I just wanted to know if there was one specific episode or a couple episodes that you that stick out in your mind or that you keep getting feedback on. I, I, I get I get feedback from some from different areas. One that I get a lot of feedback on, interestingly enough, um, with respect to negotiation, is a podcast I did with Christian Duve, who was a partner at Freshfields, and, and Christian is was very prominent in promoting mediation. And I got stuck at him. He was my mediator, actually, as a mediator in a case that that, that failed to settle in Cork, Ireland. Um, and, and and I remember, I think the other, everybody else, because they had flights, or the, the Irish party, the other side, they went home because they were from Cork. And Christian and I had breakfast the next morning, and I asked him if he would record a podcast. And he, he did. And um, he, uh, mediator, you know, what works in your view is as a negotiation tactic and what doesn't work. And he let me through sort of the, you know, what he sees in, in negotiations. And he said it was really interesting because the tactics that are very unsuccessful get very much abused and overused. And those that are, that have 
are more likely to succeed are, you know, very, very often underutilized and kind of walk through. And that's one that I think has come back several times that seemed to have made the rounds a lot. Uh, and also on the negotiation aspect, I did a podcast once with uh, William Urey, you know, the co-author mm-hmm. of Getting to Yes, and he kind of walked through, it was one of my final podcasts, he walked me through kind of his main principles of getting past no, um, you know, how to, how to negotiate with difficult people. And, and I think that made a big impression, just being with, with Bill Urey and kind of walking through and talking to him about negotiation. I think that, you know, certainly had a big impression on, on me. But I'd say all of them, I think in one way or the other, they all, you know, as I'm sure you guys do as well. Everyone that you go through, through kind of leaves a bit of a lasting impression on you 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 know it's like teaching right you you <laughs> yeah the thing about teaching is that when you know the teacher always learns more than the students from the process absolutely amen that's actually very well put uh, they they stick with you for a long time uh, i think maybe we should uh thank you mike for this and see if we can figure out a way to meet uh, physically Finally, somewhere, sometime, and have you back on. There are a few other outstanding issues in addition to the prog rules and and the, the podcasting experience that we want to talk to you about, in particular, since you're such a prolific representative of the in-house community in the world of arbitration. I, I would love to have a happy fun time with actual beers at some point with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> What 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 is what is the what is the uh, theoretical beer that you are drinking during your happy fun time? By the way, it's usually whatever Brian's firm at the time can provide for free. <laughs> <laughs>